Okay, Nehemiah, remember for 400 years Israel had been a kingdom, meaning it had a king. It, 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 was this, um, it had sovereign control, I guess is the right word, over the land that we now know as Israel. Um, after a couple hundred years or 150 years or something like that, no, less than that, like 100, uh, it was divided into two, and the, but the kingdom, um, uh, uh, the, or I should say the messianic reign that would eventually lead to Jesus Christ continued to reign um, in the south with, um, in Judah and Benjamin. And, but after 400 years, uh, there was sort of a... Uh, uh, a continued spiral, although interrupted by revivals, but each time, each each low, they went lower. I think that's the best way to say it. Manasseh um, reigned for 50 years towards the end of the 400-year uh, period, and, and just the sin was so bad, God decided at that time um, to give the nation over to judgment, even though there was another really good king, Josiah. But... Um, because they had just reached such the depths, the Lord, just as says he promised would do, he assured he would do, if they just persisted in rebellion, he would send them away from their land to other lands, he did. And around 580 BC, a series of exiles of the Jews to Babylon, modern-day Iraq, uh, 900 miles away, the Jews lived there, um, but Jeremiah the prophet, who uh, was really the last prophet um, before and during um, the time that they were being forcibly removed from the land, promised that it would be a 70-year exile. At the end of 70 years, uh, they came back. That was the book of Ezra. We read that. That was before Nehemiah. And uh, they had built the temple, but uh, Jerusalem was still laid waste. It was still in really bad condition. And so uh, what happens, uh, there is 14 uh, years between uh, really the book of Ezra and uh, Nehemiah. And uh, Nehemiah is the cupbearer of the king, King Artaxerxes. A cupbearer uh, was an exceedingly important job. He, it, he, he was a counselor. It literally meant someone who bore his cup of wine, but he was a counselor. He was a confidant uh, of the king. And uh, it's, we read it last week. It says in chapter 1, uh, verse 3, that some people came back from Judah, Jerusalem, which again was... 900 miles away, and they told Nehemiah in verse 3, the survivors who are left from the captivity, there's great distress, reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates burned with fire. And it says that he wept and he mourned and he fasted and he prayed for many days. He had a sensitivity to God's love for his people, and he knew the word of God. He knew the word of God. Deuteronomy 28 stated real, in, in clear, clear language the 
kind of prosperity that spiritual and physical that the Lord wanted his people in. Deuteronomy 28 says, It shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, he will set you high above all nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed you shall be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and you come out. And he gets this word. The people of God are in great distress. And it just makes his heart weep. And I think of our sister over here, Adonish, who just seeing, she's like a Nehemiah. She she knew the heart of her people in the country that she's from. And it just grieved her. So she's been now back to um, her country two times, a place where you really It's actually very interesting because the elders of the church just finished a a book about John Wesley and the condition of England prior to him coming in, and it got so bad because they persecuted the Christians and actually passed a law that you could not have gatherings of five or more people of of these born-again Christians who were meeting outside the Church of England. It's a similar state in her country, and... And, and oh, that the Lord would stir us up to the state of his people. From time to time, I do walk into a church, and it grieves me tremendously when I just feel the deadness and the, uh, and the absence of the presence of God because of the lack of teaching of the word of God. Or maybe they have teaching, but they're dead in their orthodoxy because they have resisted the Holy Spirit. So he fasted, and he prayed, and he wept. And I just challenge you to spend some time this week praying, Lord, make me weep for lost people. In my family, strangers, anyone. So we pray to the Lord. Reminding God of the promises of God that if people were to return to him, he would establish them, and certainly he was returning to him, and he got the opportunity to speak before the king and to ask permission to go back to Judah and rebuild the walls. To rebuild the walls. Verse 5 said, I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my fathers, that I may rebuild the city. Now that's significant. It's not only the walls. He's been told he can rebuild the whole city. And at the end of verse 8 it says, and the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God 
upon me. And so what was granted was permission and also letters to return and rebuild Jerusalem. Now, uh, we left off last week where I told you that when we started the following week, which is today, we would talk about Daniel chapter 9, which is tied very closely to this verse where the king commands or sends an order saying, go. If you could turn to Daniel chapter 9 at this point. It is the most astonishing prophecy in the Bible. And when I talked through Daniel, I, I, I really, I, I, I did my best to say, what are some other ways you could possibly look at it that this is not a prophecy that it claims to be? So the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 no one disputes it was written well before Jesus was born. No one disputes that, even people who, scholars who hate God or have nothing to do with God. No one disputes it was written before um, Jesus was born, well before he was born. No one disputes that. And the prophecy is a specific prophecy of Jesus coming right back in Two uh, of Messiah coming into Jerusalem and being crucified, and then 40 years later, Jerusalem being destroyed for crucifying Messiah, was Jesus predicted. The end of the book of Luke. He says, he wept and he said, look, if you only knew this was the day that was for your peace, but you're you've rejected it and the time's going to come where not one stone is going to be upon the other. You're going to be flattened, which happened. And there's no doubt about that. That happened in 70 AD. So I'm going to try to make this as simple as possible. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. This is Daniel. After he had been praying to the Lord, diligently praying to the Lord. When you diligently pray to the Lord, I heard a sermon last week by Charles Stanley on praying and fasting. I, hadn't heard, I haven't heard him in 30 years, and I was like, I can't believe how gifted this guy is. This is incredible. Um, and one of the things that he said was, you do not see a time in the Bible where people prayed and fasted for a significant period of time where God did not come in and empower. The problem is people don't want to fast because they don't like it. But... It says in verse 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people, meaning the Jews, and for your city to finish the transgression, transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Verse 25 Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's Nehemiah. We just read that verse. We just read it. Nehemiah, and there's a specific date that secular scholars will tell you when it was. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8. The king 
gave the command to rebuild Jerusalem. Significantly, not rebuild the temple, rebuild Jerusalem. And that was the command. Know they are not to understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. So this is a prediction of when Jesus Christ would be coming into Jerusalem. It says there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, meaning Jesus Christ is going to die, but not for himself, meaning he's dying for you. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall become like a flood and till the end of the war desolations are determined. So, Try to follow me here. First thing to understand, the word week means a period of seven years in the Old Testament. Leviticus 25, when they're talking about the year of Jubilee, which happens every 50 years, says after seven weeks of years, and Jacob as well, um, there's a reference to Jacob having to wait one week for Rachel, and everyone knows that was how long. Seven years. He had to wait seven years um, for <laughs> Laban to give him his wife. Uh, Laban was quite a guy. And they lied about it and made him wait another seven years. But um, So when you see seven weeks, that's 70, seven, 70 um, segments of seven years, which is 490 years. So it says in uh, verse 25... Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build the temple, meaning Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8, until Messiah the Prince, meaning when Jesus Christ would publicly say, yes, I am the Messiah. Remember for a while Jesus was saying, um, the people who said he was Messiah, don't tell anyone. And the reason was the time wasn't right yet. The Daniel chapter 9 time wasn't quite right yet. And that was when he came into Jerusalem. It says there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The, the, the street shall be built again and the, and the wall, even in troublesome times. So it says, and there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now follow me. Seven weeks is how many years? Someone shout it out. 49 years. So there's going to first be a period of 49 years, and that is going to be the rebuilding of the temple. Now, in 52, rebuilding of Jerusalem, rather, in 52, in, in 52 days, we're going to see Nehemiah build the wall. But it's going to take, Jerusalem's like rubble. It's laid waste. You don't build a whole city in 52 days. So after a period of 49 years, um, Jerusalem was rebuilt. From that time, I forget, I can't, I can't do the math, but, but um, it's, 
it's uh, from that time, there's an additional period of time uh, to where the Messiah comes. So from the time, it w which is a total of 62 plus, um, rather, yeah, 62 plus 7 is 69. So 69 periods of seven years is 483 years. And so if you... Um, add 483 years using the amount of days for the year of a Jewish calendar at the time, which was 360 days, not 365, you go right to the time where Ju Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And so the year that this command went out was, well, there's a debate whether it was 445 B.C. or 444 B.C. There's differences of opinion whether Jesus died in 4, or rather than 32 um, A.D. or um, 33 A.D. It's not sure. But if you add, or if you subtract from when Jesus died to the time that... Um, and came into Jerusalem to the time where Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8, says the order went out to rebuild um, uh, Jerusalem. There is 69 weeks of years. And I tell you, the book of Daniel is attacked more than any other book in the Bible. You can do your research. I mean secular, the, 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 the seminaries which are not Christian, but they call themselves Christian, attack it relentlessly. Why? Because if it's true, the whole world's in deep trouble with God. <laughs> and so uh, an astonishing prophecy uh, that really uh, the, the, the dates begin, and you guys can do, go do the research, the, ex, the, the day that, um, the, bet, the date that they come up with when, when uh, Artaxerxes gave the command to rebuild Jerusalem and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, but an astonishing prophecy. Verse 9, let's continue. So I, I fulfilled my promise from the end of the message last week. We talked about Daniel chapter 9. You can do your own research. You can also go into our website and listen to Daniel chapter 9 when we did that many, many years ago. Verse 9, Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. The kings had given him letters authorizing him to rebuild Jerusalem. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. Now if you remember, if you were with us in the book of Ezra, in the book of Ezra, Ezra did not ask for an army to go with him or soldiers to go with him to guard him. On the 900-mile trek from Babylon to Jerusalem, which was filled with bandits, here, Nehemiah had soldiers accompanying him. It's so important we don't make laws in the Bible out of that which were never intended to make laws. Now, sometimes people will be told, look, you know, if you're um, going to 
the Islamic, you know, Al-Qaeda into their camp. And the Holy Spirit tells someone, don't bring your gun. Doesn't mean that's a law. The next person may be called to go to the same place and bring a gun. You just can't, you can't make laws just because there's something in Ezra that Ezra says, well, I, I, I don't need any soldiers. I'm just going to rely on God. But you do have to seek the Lord. What is his will? Sometimes he's going to tell you. No, you're not going to bring a gun. You're not going to, you're not going to have any, you're, you're not going to have much at all in terms of your, to, to protect your safety. It's just going to be me and me alone. There will be times like that. And so, he goes with captains of the army and the horsemen with with me, he says in verse 10, it says, when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Satan knows prophecy better than anyone. He knows that Messiah is going to come through the Jews. And oh, how he wants to kill the Jews. And we'll see that in the book of Esther. In the book of Esther. Not to be confused with Esther. I've been told many times by my wife not to pronounce it like that. But, the, but, but Satan knows the Bible. And... Um, He's just stirring up these guys. You know, I, 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 I sent Danielle the heart a text to set up the next scripture memory, so I'm memorizing Ephesians chapter 2. And I've just really been thinking a lot about the first few verses of Ephesians chapter 2, which says, you, now speaking of you guys in this room, I know all you guys, so it's speaking to you. He made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, but then it says, and you also walked according to the prince of the power of the air, meaning Satan just led you around. And it doesn't stop there. It says, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And so when these guys come in, to rebuild Jerusalem, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience stirred them up. And to be sure, if you go public with your faith, and oh, how I really believe, as I said uh, uh, to conclude the the service on Sunday, oh how I believe the Lord wants you to go public with your faith and confront with love this city with the reality that, that there is a God and he requires something of him. But when you start doing that, oh how the devil is going to come against you. All I can say, Ephesians 2.10, just keep walking. No matter how bad it looks. This guy, Sam Ballot. 
was the governor of Samaria. It's a wonderful thing, you know. You can go and there are things in the Bible where archaeologists have dug up documents proving they happened. We talked about that with Hezekiah with Assyrians surrounding Jerusalem. There's in the, in the, in the British Museum, there's a there's this inscription there by the Assyrians talking about how they surrounded Jerusalem. Just like we read about Hezekiah. But with Sambalat, there is this document called the Elephanti or Elephantus Papyri or Papyrus, that's what they used to write on, which was found in Egypt, dated 407 B.C., with a guy in it called Samballat, the governor of Samaria. Same guy. Bible just being proven true by documents. This is a powerful guy. A powerful guy. A governor, is, it says, was deeply disturbed. And then it has this other guy, Tobiah the Ammonite were deeply disturbed that I had, that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Oh, how I pray that you seek the well-being of the people of God. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I've always loved these, these verses here. Then I arose in the night I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one which I rode. I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. In other words, it's just the places in ruins. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. And then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And you know what this is? What they call in Spanish, a caminate. At least that's what they say in Peru. He went on a walk. This is a prayer walk. And you know, I, I actually remember the time when I started trying to walk and pray, and I just have this recollection. It was just weird. <laughs> so how do you walk and pray at the same time? And now it's just a big, big part of my life. I'm thankful for it. Part of it is because, part of the reason I do it is just because sometimes when I pray, I just start falling asleep. It's not that I'm like this incredibly spiritual guy. It's like, I want to stay awake. Um, but I believe this is a prayer walk that was just incredibly intense, which, by the way, sometimes... The Lord will bless you with prayer walks like this. And he's just going to this place. Keep in mind, he has never been there. He grew up in a place 900 miles away. And this is not a time where 
you took a bullet train from Beijing to Shanghai and got there in whatever it is, an hour and a half, or it's probably longer than that. But uh, it, it just, it's, it, he had never been there, but you can imagine this guy who is steeped in Scripture, how unbelievably intense this was to be in this city. And he had been reading about, memorizing Scripture. And he's there now, and he's walking around. He probably has tears in his eyes, but he's crying out to God, and he's filled with that purpose, that wonderful purpose of God that God just fills you up with. I'm going to use you to rebuild all of this. I just can't imagine the intimacy between Nehemiah and the Lord, and you can have this same intimacy on prayer walks. By the way, they're good for your health as well, your physical health. I find it very significant that he goes um, first to uh, the valley gate, but, but the, the also the refuse gate. And, 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 and the King James, of course, puts it right, the dung gate. fecal matter, sewerage is carried out of the city through this gate. This is where he goes first. It really is so much a part of the Christian life. Getting ankle deep, waist deep, In the, in the refuse, Christians. It's a lot of it. Every single one of us. And it's not easy. You know, sometimes I, you know, it's like I gotta run. No, you ain't running nowhere, Steve. But in you too, don't run. It's a big part of the Christian life. Yes, there's joy, there's exhilaration, and the, the, the Bible does speak of a life of joy for us, but part of it, the joy will go away if you avoid the, the dung of other Christians. But stay there, and you can't be bitter about it either. You're going to go there willingly. He goes to the refuse gate. They viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates that were burned with fire. So again, I talked about this last week, just the images of the Babylonians going through there, tearing down people, killing children, killing, probably raping women as well, just destroying the city. And God's kind of just build it all back up. Verse 14, Then I went to the fountain gate in the king's pool. Then I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials, verse 16, 
did not know where I had gone or what I had done. And so uh, I just like that. He's able to go and, and do business with God, and he probably knew that uh, if he told everyone what he was going to do, it would interrupt his time with the Lord and his time going around at this, the city. I shall say that um, this guy is very gifted administrator, and so he's, in addition to praying, he's also planning. By the way, you can do that at the same time. He's planning. You know, what's he, how's he going to do this? He's, he's a senior cabinet member of empire, a world empire, and this guy knows how to organize people. He's gifted in administration, and he's figuring out a way to, to do that. The officials, but he didn't want the rest of the people, if they had found out what he was doing, who knows um, if he would, there would be opposition and prevent him from just doing what he wanted to do. So for three days, keeps his mouth shut. Again, verse 16, and the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. So it's interesting that those who came with him were trusted people. They didn't get there, start t talking about what they were going to do. Nehemiah had apparently sworn them to secrecy. I appreciate our elder board. I, I love those guys. The amount of unity that we've had over the years is, just brings me to tears. We were at a, a retreat this weekend. But they... Um, there are men, all of them, are men that keep things in confidence, probably to a fault. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, um, they just, they, they want to protect people's nakedness. They don't, and, and, and sometimes they may even go overboard in, in the case where, you know, something needs to be done and someone's identity needs to be disclosed, but they don't want to do it, and things may get held up, but... Um, so important for leaders, especially to value confidence and privacy. Verse 17, then I said to them, you see the distress. So he goes and he starts talking to them. I had not told the Jews. Then, it, then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste. It is quite pathetic that, you know, in many places, the body of Christ, satisfied with mediocrity, satisfied with lukewarm, and they look around at crumbling churches, crumbling spiritual lives, and they don't care. And it takes someone with a prophetic gift to come in and say, what is it that you don't see? <laughs> That's what is going on here. His spirit is, is, um, is just affected. You see the distress that we're in, how Jerusalem lies waste 
And, and you think again, you think of Deuteronomy 28 where it says uh, about Jerusalem and, and Israel, uh, where, where it says that the God will set you high above all nations of the earth. And it's like the people don't care. Do you not care what the word of God says about what church is supposed to look like? You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. Instead of people looking at us and saying, look at that lame excuse for a religious people. They're looking at them like God must be among this people. A common prayer on Sunday morning, prayer 9.30 a.m. I welcome all of you to be there when we pray and cry out to God, it's one of my favorite times every week, is, oh Lord, if an unbeliever comes into this place, please do what's necessary for them to cry out. Like it says, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 12, or maybe 14, surely God is in this place. That's what we want the world to think when they're looking at us. When they come to our church service at Calvary Chapel, surely God is in this place. I don't know about you. That was definitely the case last Sunday. I was texting Dan. So, Dan, that was serious. Wow, worship time. I mean, that was wonderful. That we should no longer be a reproach. Verse 18, And I told them of the hand of my God... which had been good upon me, and also the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. And so he's, he's been in prayer, man. Well, man, this guy has been in prayer. What was he praying? That he would be received with prayer. That God would go before. So, you know, when you are doing your ministry, just pray that the Lord would go before you and touch the hearts of people. Whatever you do, pray. I mean, God, the, the most important prayer is in the prayer closet, please. So he had, he had been prayed up. He had been praying for this. This, this doesn't come out of nowhere, the statement, let us rise up and build. No, this, is, this had been prayed over. Then they set their hands to this good work, but when Samballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us. Anyone want to quote it? I'll be so proud of you. What does Galatians chapter 6, verse 14 say? I did a whole sermon on it. And God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of Jesus Christ by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. So we talked about what that means, I to the world. I'm crucified to the world. It means I'm up on a cross and the world looks at me and they mock me because I'm a Christian. Not everyone. Some will respect you for it, even unbelievers, but some will mock you They'll ridicule you. It just says of Jesus when he was on the cross, they blasphemed and mocked him, saying, he saved others. 
but he can't save himself. Ha, ha, ha. They laughed at him. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him if he will receive him. For he said he was the son of God. They were mocking him. The chief priests, the elders, but really all the passers-by were mocking Jesus. And they will mock. You will have people mock you. I tell you, I've, I've been witnessing each week myself out on the street. It's been very good for me personally. One of the things that happens, I have people laugh at me. And I tell you, you know, with me, my personality, I mean, if someone gets angry at me, I mean, that's not that hard. If they um, start arguing with me, if they, if they ignore me, I don't like, particularly like that, but I tell you, a man, person laughing at me, ah, eek. I don't like that. It's my pride. I got nasty pride. They laughed at them and despised them. Says the Isaiah 53, it says, they looked at Jesus and they turned their face away. They despised what they saw. Same thing's going to happen with you if you go public. And Boston is famous. As any of you have read that book, Charles Finney, that I'm twisting everyone's arm to try to Read the autobiography, the long version. Boston, 150 years ago, you're reading about it. All the Christians, they just are scared of people, so they live in a cave, and they're ashamed of their faith. It's <laughs> like, wait, is this written 150 years ago? Going public with your faith. They laughed at him. And they said, what is this thing that you are doing? Middle of verse 19. Will you rebel against the king? And I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Whatever you do, bring in the name of God. Bring in the name of Jesus if someone confronts you. Just bring it in. Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. And he didn't have to bring in the name of God. I, I do think it's important. You can say, well, you know, I have the right to do what I'm doing. Well, that's true. But then after God uses what you're doing, then you go public. Oh, God did this. It's not the same glory as if you brought God's name in before, where the people heard beforehand all this rubble, and you're bringing the name of God in, God's going to raise this rubble. Go public with your faith. The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. That's a bold statement, to say the least, especially they're claiming sovereignty over it. I do wonder what King Artaxerxes would have thought him saying this, but um, uh, the Bible says it's their land, and he's just saying what the Bible says. It's our heritage, our right, our memorial. Verse 3, chapter 3. 
So this chapter is um, this chapter is uh, it's not quite like the book of First Chronicles, but it's 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 it, it goes it's a, basically a list. It's not necessarily as fascinating and interesting to read, but I, I want to get through it. There are some good things here. He's assigning people. There's ten gates. My counting is correct. There's ten gates that go into Jerusalem, and he's assigning people who are in charge of each gate. It says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. The priest would have really probably be gravitated towards working on this gate as the sheep that came through to what? To be used in sacrifice. They came in from the countryside, the sheep into Jerusalem to be sacrificed. The sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of the Hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the Tower of Hananel. Verse 2. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built and next to them, Zachar, the son of Emery, built. And the sons of Hasena built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Mer- Merimoth, of the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshalem, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabel made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, made repairs. Verse 5, next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. Romans chapter 12 says, do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. I don't care how much money you're making, how well you've done in your life, you better be willing to go to the refuse gate and with the the dung gate and whoever's Who's ever pulling dung through that door or shoveling it out, you better be willing to do it. Again, this book that we just read on Wesley, not an easy book to read, by the way, before you run to it. Um, don't, don't blame me. Uh, like, this is really hard to read. But it uh, describes England prior to the first, the, the first Great Awakening, which was happening simultaneously in England and in the United States. But... The nobles, the aristocracy, just despised what was going on. They did not want to. Um, they did not want to participate. John Wesley himself was an Oxford grad, probably the most prestigious college in the history of the world. Highly educated man. He went 
just to, he went immediately, right after he was saved, he went to the prisons, to the coal miners, to the worst people, and this is massive revival starts, and, but, but the rest of the aristocracy is just despising. They didn't want to put their hands to it. I'm talking about preachers and pastors and people in churches. It says, even the church where his father was a preacher at wouldn't give him communion. They were so against what he was doing, sort of with the masses, being outside. It was unheard of, doing sermons outdoors, and that was just too low for them. It says the nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. I have to say this, God does notice who works and who doesn't. You know, I look around at the people in this room, you're all, you're all doing work for the Lord. But just so you know, he does notice who does work, and he's writing all their names down, and he is noticing who doesn't do work at the, at the house of the Lord. It says, moreover, Jehoiada, verse 6, the son of Paseah and Meshulam, the son of Besodia repaired the old gate, and they laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. Next to them, Melathiah, the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Marathonite. Um, verse 8, next to him, Uziel. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers. So I, you know, it's interesting to me, in verse 8, you have a goldsmith. This guy... Uziel was a goldsmith. And then you have this guy, Hananiah, who was a perfumer. Like everyone, they're leaving what they normally do. And th you know, this is really important that we don't get stuck on what we're doing. And when we're asked, hey, there's a need over there. Well, I can't do that. You know, I'm the sound guy. But I want you to go work with the youth group. I'm not talking about you, John. I, I can't do that. I'm a sound guy. You know, you know you, that's not what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to, you know, there's an emergency going on. It's, there's a crisis. They need to rebuild the walls. And uh, the perfumer is, is helping build walls. He's helping build walls and with hammers and bolts and bars. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that, that wall smelled really good when you walked by it. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> but verse 9, next to him, Rephiah, the leader of the half-district of Jerusalem, made repairs. And you just have all these people who were signed. Next to him, Jediah, verse 11. Malshiha. It says, repaired another section as well as the Tower of the Ovens. It's like cool stuff. I guess in that wall, there's ovens within the wall to bake bread and things like that. Next to him was Shalom, verse 12. Verse 13, Hanan. Stephanie likes that name. And the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate. Verse 14, Melchizedek of Rechab, leader of the district, repaired the refuse gate. I mean, that's amazing. So 
well, that didn't smell like perfume. This guy was assigned to this. I mean, it must have really been hard. The smell, the odor. They faithfully worked there. Verse 15, Shalom, the son of Kolhosa, the repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors, and its bolts and bars. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, that's someone different, made repairs as far as the place in front of the tombs of David. And so it goes through this list. And after him, their brethren under Bavai, in verse 19. And it just goes through the, uh, the, the, the different folks. We'll go to verse 26. It says, the Nephanim, who dwelt in Ophel, made repairs as far as the place of the water gate. Verse 28, beyond the horse gate, the, uh, the, the priest made repairs. Verse 29, they repaired the east gate. Verse 31, they repaired the Mifkad gate. And in verse 40, 32, the chapter ends in between the upper room at the corner as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. So the merchants, these are the rich guys who traded. They, here you have people who were nobles who were willing to do just whatever it took to rebuild these gates. I'm not, it's interesting. I guess they have done a study. There are certain people who've done teachings. It says in Hebrews chapter 10 that Jesus says, behold, the volume of the book is written about me. And there are those who go through the gates, the sheep gate, the fish gate, the old gate, valley gate, refuse gate, fountain gate, water gate, horse gate, east gate, myth god, which means judgment gate, and then back to the sheep gate, and they basically says they all these gates speak of Jesus Christ. I don't know that I've come over the fence on that one. They may be right. They may be wrong. It seems like a stretch, but you may in your own time want to go and study that, and you can come back to me and say, Pastor Steve, how can you not believe? It's obvious. Okay, I'm willing to be persuaded. But um, what, a, what, a, what a great picture of Ephesians chapter 4, which says, speaking in the truth and love, we, that we would grow up in all things into him who is the head, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And so, that's uh, a great picture. That's a picture of the church. This is, of course, the church hasn't been established yet, but this is the people of God. It says every part is doing its share. They're getting together. 